0: Earth mounds, stone circles, ley lines, the secret of Solomon's temple, radionics, orgone, what do they all have in common, and how can they help you grow a gangbuster's garden? Well, keep listening to this episode of the Plant Cunning Podcast, and you may find out. Today we have John Michael Greer on the show again. We're going to talk about all of these subjects and more. Now, I do want to offer something to our listeners— if you would like some free plans and literature on earth pipes, then email us at plantcunning at gmail.com, and I will send those to you. Okay, well, here is the episode. Okay, so we have John Michael Greer again. He's been, I think, one of our most guested guests.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, welcome back, John Michael Greer. How are you?
2: I'm, I'm doing very well, thank you, and pleasure to be on as always. Great.
0: Yeah, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. You have so much knowledge and wisdom, and it's it's
2: kind of daunting sometimes, but... <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know.
2: What you're trying to say is that I'm a geek who likes to talk about the subjects of interest to him. Yes,
0: that's
2: very <laughs> true. <laughs> well, me too.
0: <laughs> but you're at a pretty high level of not just geekiness,
2: but mastery of so, no, it's it's a matter of time. When you uh-huh. get to the age of sixty, you're probably going to be have some, I don't know whether' we'll, they'll be doing podcasts at this point or whether you know it'll be a matter of having a conversation on a campfire. but <laughs> <laughs> you, trust me, you'll get the same reaction.
0: Well, hopefully it'll be more like a shortwave radio or something like that.
2: Hey, that's a possibility. W six N E R D. If I'd had my wits about me, I would have seen when when I got my ham radio license, I would have seen if something like that was available. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> my bad. Oh well. <laughs> So
0: the subject of today's episode is largely earth energies, which is kind of a Mm -hmm. big, big subject. But what got me interested in this as an episode with you is that you've just published a new book called Ceremonies of the Grail with Llewellyn, which I haven't been able to read yet, but I have read the prequel to it, The Secret of the Temple. And for me, Mm -hmm. this was a mind blowing book. Mm -hmm. Um, Good. Yeah. (laughs) It was so interesting. Because it really gives a a new light on temple technology, even standing stones and ley lines and all that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. which I had never really delved into that much before. So I'd like to start with a quote from The Secret of the Temple, and this is from page 103. And it says, I propose, in fact, that ancient temples and medieval churches did exactly what the legends claimed they were able to do caused a significant increase in local agricultural and ecological productivity when they were built and operated according to certain principles.
3: Uh-huh. And
0: that's a pretty that's powerful claim because there are a lot of ideas about what Solomon's Temple is all about and
1: so you're saying that they actually did what the ancients said they did? <laughs>
2: exactly. What a shocking concept oh, that, right. that people, people in the Middle Ages, people in ancient times, actually paid attention to their environments, noticed that certain things had certain effects, and said, "Aha! Uh-huh, here is something we can do." You know, we're all very cool about the fact that they did things like, you know, designing effective ships and um, Mm -hmm. learning a lot about navigation and map making, working out the basic, I mean, you know, inventing logic, inventing mathematics, all this other stuff. And the the only, well, there are complicated reasons why we don't extend that to things like the claims that surrounded ancient temples, the claims that they produced increased agricultural fertility in the, in the vicinity. You know, we can get into the, there's, there's that whole tangled mess around the rejection of spirituality and so on. The assumption mm-hmm. that, that anything that has anything to do with spirituality must, if it has any relevance at all, it has a relevance in some distant ethereal far off realm on the far side of death or something, or it's all just, just, um, you know, crack pottery. But, one of the points that I'm trying to make here is that the the temple technology, as I've termed it, may not be something spiritual in the narrow sense of that word. It may be a physical effect, that it may be that there is something going on here that is a function of of the laws of physics as we know them. And in fact, I make several suggestions as to what that effect might have been. I, I've been working on this further, and there's probably gonna be another book in a couple of years when I finish doing the necessary research. But this is not woo-woo. Right. This is not you know some kind of some kind of strange um, allegorical, mystical, whatchamacallit. This is this is something that could be tested by science. If only the scientists were willing to pull their heads out from, well, certain biologically improbable locations and pay attention <laughs> to the evidence. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's quite a shame. Because, of course, mm-hmm. people back
2: then, they were just silly, <laughs> uneducated, primitive. 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 Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. And again, I, I like pointing out, these are the people who invented logic. These are the people who invented, I mean, the ancient Greeks. Built temples according to this design. They had these tr- these teachings, traditions. They talked about them. They, I mean, they invented logic. They invented formal geometry based on logical proofs. They were not just you know a bunch of grunting savages. They were in many ways uh, somewhat more sophisticated than we are.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think,
2: <laughs> and yet, and yet everyone assumes, well, yeah, but they lived before us. Therefore, they must have been stupid. I'm sorry. That's as dense as a box of rocks.
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: totally. So, what are some of these temple technologies that you are
2: trying okay. to? Ba- basically, what, I, what I'm suggesting here is that probably beginning in megalithic times, beginning in the days that the old long barrows were first built, pure dumb luck enabled some people to stumble across an effect, a specific effect that happens when you assemble structures in certain ways that function as a resonant chamber for certain energies. I'm pretty sure that, it's, that what's going on is primarily high-frequency microwaves. And we'll get to the reason for that in a moment. And that effect was through, long, through, through centuries and centuries of experimentation of temple building was refined and developed into the temple form that we have it in the first literate civilizations that in fact this was this was understood in religious terms. If you build a temple this way, the gods will bless you with bumper crops. That was the language that was the language of thought that people used in those days. But that it was based on a physical reality. Just as, you know, people talked about agriculture in religious terms, you know, you offer the seed to the soil of sacrifice and oh yes, you take ashes from your animal sacrifices when you burn bits of animals to the gods, you take those ashes and spread them on the fields, and the gods are pleased. We'd call that fertilizer now, and it's pretty good. But, but it works. The point is that it works. And so this specific way of making a building, making a structure as a resonating chamber for certain naturally occurring energies, very modest energy levels, mm-hmm. um, was passed down from society to society as one of the, one of the secrets of the old priesthoods. One of the one of their special tricks, one of the ways they pleased the gods, right. that it was um, in common use in ancient Egypt, it was in common use in ancient India. Um, it was not in common use in China. they had a different technology which'll we'll get which we can get to in a bit. Sure. but it came to be used by various complicated reasons in medieval Europe, and so many of the church the old churches of medieval Europe, not, not even so much like the cathedrals, but your ordinary rural parish churches were built according to the same design, operated according to it, and therefore had the same effects. And that um, the information of how to do this was one of the secrets of the old builders' guilds. And it represents the lost secret, the lost word of the Freemasons, the secret they don't have anymore, that you know, every Freemason knows. We don't have the lost word. The word that we get in the Master Mason ritual is a substitute and you know until the true word is found again so you know this was a secret it may still be out there you know in, in um i would particularly love to see some serious searching of, of um the sanskrit literature on temples in india Be slotted, it yeah. and there yeah. may be really some information in japan because the japanese got a version of it and um many shinto many shinto shrines are designed according to the same principles and so you have this, this particular technology that rose and fell, and I think can be recovered. So that, that's kind of the summary. I do stress the singular. It's a temple technology. It's not as though they had this, this whole huge range of different things. There were a couple of tricks that were worked out mm. um, over, the, over the millennia, probably as much by trial and error as, as anything else. But they worked, right. and they'd be worth rediscovering.
0: And and so, just briefly, some of those tricks would be that resonating chamber.
2: Exactly. Uh, there are basic. There are basically two such tricks. Okay? okay. There's the one that's used where there's a resonating chamber, and there's another one that involves mounds or or stepped pyramids. There is a fascinating book, and our listeners will want to look into this. It's called "Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty." It's by John Burke and Kaj Halberg, and it's published in I think 2005, and. They figured out the the, um, the mound, the temple, the, the stair-step pyramid version. What happens when you have one of those in the right place, in a place that, that has a great deal of geomagnetism, because of course, geomagnetism varies from place to place, but you get a lot of magnetic energy. If you take your seeds and put them on top of that for a while and then take it off and plant them, the seeds have been magnetically stressed in a curious way, and it makes them... More fertile. It makes them grow faster. And this book actually goes into all the science as to why that happens, what actually is happening to the seeds when they're being zapped by a steady, mild magnetic field, and talks about technological ways of doing the same thing. But there are still people in, you know, in, in Central America, people still take their, their seed corn to the top of old Mayan pyramids and sit it there for a while because they know, you know that's, that's the way you get good crops. Yeah, that's fascinating. But the same kind of thing was being done in Mesopotamia with the ziggurats, their stair-step pyramid. It was done until quite recently in China, where they have what's called an earth altar, which is a little stair-step pyramid made of earth. And so one way or another, that's technology number one. That's probably the older of the two. It's simpler of the two. Technology number two uses the radiating, uses the resonating chamber. You build a chamber. You surround it with rock or with some other, with certain, a very limited range of other substances, but stone normally works best. You fill it with volatile organic compounds. That's usually spelled incense. Right. (laughs) And if you've got it in the right place, location is crucial here because you need, again, you need that magnetic flux. You get it and it functions as a low energy maser, a microwave laser, It radiates coherent microwave energy microwaves have enormously interesting and complex effects on both plants and insects. Now, exactly how this works to benefit crops is an interesting question. Again, the tests would have to be done. I'm guessing based on some of the research that has been done, that what happens is that all the, um, the, the plant pests basically flock to it the way they flock to a bug light. And so all of a sudden you don't have grasshoppers and things eating your crops. Wow. Would this be an advantage? <laughs> Why? Yes, Socrates, it would. Wow. <laughs> so, but I'm not sure that that's the actual mechanism. But, yeah. but the the micro the the, the microwave laser the ma- this low energy maser effect is something that I'm just now really starting to investigate. Um, the book The Secret of the Temple leaves that whole issue open and says, "Well, here's what we know might be involved. Here are some of the factors. It might be microwave. Might be magnetism. Might be lo- um ter- ter- terrestrial electricity. There are electric currents that flow through the soil." It's been known, of course, for a long time. In the 1920s and the 1930s, before chemical pesticides and chemical fertilizers became all the rage, there was an entire field of study called electroculture where people were using low, low amperage trickle currents through soil and having remarkable improvements in plant growth. Were, they, were the ancients doing some similar thing by, sort of by, by gathering and amplifying um, the charges of the local terrestrial current? That seems very possible to me. I don't know. Research would need to be done. Mm-hmm. But those are some of the things that are probably feeding into this whole, this whole thing. Certain natural energies that can be picked up, amplified, used... By a properly designed resonating chamber, call it a temple, full of organic vol- you know, volatile organic compounds. Call it incense, hit with vibratory energy at regular intervals. You can call that chanting if you want. <laughs> and funny things happen. No, seriously, you can get, yeah. you can get um, organic compounds to laze or to maze to radiate coherent energy wavelengths quite readily using sound, using using things like that. It's just. You have, to be, you have to be smart. You have to be a little tricky about it. So that's probably more than you wanted to know about the technology.
0: Oh, no. That's...
1: Love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Love it all.
0: So you're saying that the reason that there are pyramids in Mesoamerica, North America, China, mm-hmm. and Baghdad, mm-hmm. you know, it's not because of aliens? It's not because it's of it. aliens. It's <laughs> <Being> a little <laughs> more practical. Hey,
2: maybe aliens like corn. Yeah, <laughs> they say, here, why don't you build this thing? And then you'll have lots of corn. You can sell it to us and we'll, you know, we'll sell you, you know, alien trinkets from Alpha Centauri or something. <laughs> I don't think aliens had anything to do with it. <laughs> well, it, it's
0: just like it's it's a little less like romantic or. Uh, oh, well, but it's in
2: so a practical. way. It's, it, it it's, but but also, think, you know, we, we have lost track of the romance of science. Mm. We because probably because we have so many boring scientists and so many boring (laughs) science promoters (laughs) who are so busy saying, busy you know putting on this sort of nasal voice and saying, "No, you can't have fun with this." I'm going to show my age, okay? Back when I was a kid, you know, back when I was a kid, you could get chemistry set equipment at the local hobby store. Was there romance to it? You bet there was. The idea that you could invent things, you could discover things—that was exciting. It wasn't just something where you just sit there watching a screen. It was a matter of actually getting getting on and doing stuff. And so you had books of science experiments you could do. And no, they're not these little prepackaged things. It's, it's get together some stuff and have fun with it. Yeah. We've lost that. And I think that's one of the reasons that so many people have, have lost what interest they had in the sciences. They, you know, I... People are probably going to be freaking out to hear an arch druid saying this, but you know there is no necessary opposition between science and spirit. There isn't. Yeah. One has been drawn, and dragged into place by political factors. Right. But, um, you know, as a druid, scientific ecology is very important to me, and uh, by which I don't mean marching around with sign. I mean learning something about the interrelations of plants and animals and their environments. Um, You know, the life sciences have enormous amounts to teach that are relevant to my spirituality. I think that's probably true of everyone. If if only we can get the fundamentalist religious people and the fundamentalist scientists to go off somewhere, you know, get a room or whatever they need. (laughs) They need to do and just stop bothering the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. But
0: at the same time, though, like I understand why people like Hieronymus or like Steiner or (laughs) like Reich, don't exist anymore because you know, Reich was put in hmm. prison
2: and oh, died. Yeah, no, yeah. He, was, he was thrown into jail and died there because he discovered something you're not allowed to discover. Yes. Yeah. But the other thing is, of course, that he was far too naive. Yeah. Uh, Hieronymus is a great example here. Thomas Galen Hieronymus. T. Galen Hieronymus. What better name for a mad scientist? I know. It's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> he, was, he was a brilliant electronic engineer. He made a fortune doing um, electronic engineering for, for the big corporations. And yet he did not die in prison, quite the contrary, because he paid attention to the laws. He paid attention to the wiggle room, privately circulated manuscripts on the Hieronymus machine and rates all say on every single page, you know, this is an experimental technique and not a substitute for ordinary medical care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's legal protection. Yeah. yeah. He knew how to play that game. Mm-hmm. and he played it to the hilt and he he was extremely successful his information is available um of course Reich you know Reich may have died in prison but it's not as though there's a shortage of people working with orgone boxes right now it's
3: true right. yeah
2: yeah so you know it's it's a constant thing people keep on rediscovering the life force
3: yeah mm-hmm.
2: and they keep on being yelled at by scientific fundamentalists of the kind that I was describing a moment ago for discovering the life force but they keep on discovering it because it's there <laughs> and because if you pay attention, if you're honest in terms of your research, you're going to find it if you look into the right things and then you know we start getting people you know people studying the work of Mesmer and people studying the work of Reichenbach and people studying the work of Reich and of of Hieronymus and of all the other people um we're We're very nearly at a point where some some major syntheses could be drawn on that basis. And I'd like to see that happen.
0: Yeah. So do you think we could get into like who Hieronymus was? Because maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with him. And actually I think he plays a role in the secret of the temple and the earth pipe, which we'll get to talk about a little later is like okay. a mini temple, but yeah. So who, who okay. was he?
2: Okay. T- 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 Thomas Galen Hieronymus was, was a 20th century American electrical engineer. He had a number of patents he worked for. I forget which big corporation as an engineer and, you know, did put in his put in his career and retired with a gold watch and everything. He was a very successful inventor, but he was also interested in things that you're not supposed to be interested in. Uh, Back around the turn of the last century, you had a handful of people who were experimenting with electricity as a healing modality. You had Albert Abrams. He was, the, he was the fount of this whole thing. He was working with radionics? electricity. This is, this is where radionics came from. Right, okay. okay. He was working with electricity. Electricity as a way of healing people, putting into, you know, currents, you know, mild currents of low amperage electricity into the human body was being heavily experimented with back before chemical medicine took over the field. And they actually accomplished a lot. It didn't make money for big pharma, so of course you don't hear about these days. But they had some interesting stuff. But Abrams was an experimenter. Many doctors were in those days. Many clinicians actually ran experiments all the time. They were constantly recording what they did and submitting papers to journals, saying, "Yeah, you know, I I had these 14 patients with such and such, and we tried this new technique, and guess what? It worked, or what have you." So Abrams was working with this this electrical machinery, and he was noticing more and more often there were things going on that did not not seem to have anything to do with electricity. Then he tried a similar machine without a battery and started getting similar results. And it got weird from there. That's where radionics (laughs) came from. Um, Abrams, I don't think Abrams ever really made the jump that, that Hieronymus did, but we'll get to that in a moment, toward recognizing this as something other, a force not currently recognized by science. But let's see. So Abrams left a big body of work. You can get most of his books from, from the usual online archives. Ruth Drown came after him. She spent a while in prison because by that time the AMA was really under the thumb of the chemical industry and was starting to get the government to crack down on anything that wasn't chemical medicine. Um, and Drown and Abrams and Drown, and there was a variety of people in England who were doing De Loire. The De Loire's family, husband and wife did some, did some impressive things there. Um, and then you had, you had Hieronymus, who picked up that and said, okay, I know electricity, and he did, of course. And he ran this whole series of experiments and said, no, what is going on here? Something is moving through this wire, Mm. but it's not electricity. We don't Mm. know what it is. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to assume that it's something woo-woo. There are various kinds of things that can flow through a copper wire. But his term for it was illoptic energy because it was kind of like electricity and kind of like light, you know, electric optic, iloptic. So, you know, we don't know what it is. He, he didn't hypothesize. He just said, if you do these things, these results will follow. Now, that's the point where it started getting into definitely occult territory because, you know, he had done these various things. And John W. Campbell, who at the, that time was the editor of Astounding Science Fiction, later Analog, was really interested in, in alternative science. You could do that in science fiction in those days without getting screamed into silence. <laughs> By the, by the rationalist junkies. Yeah. Um, and so he, he picked up the Hieronymus machine, and he's the guy who figured out that you can get effects, not quite the same effects, you can get certain effects if you simply make a drawing of the circuit, and you use that as though it was a machine. And there's a whole world out there of symbolic Hieronymus machines. That This is called a talisman, okay? <laughs> the yeah. cultists know all about this right. stuff. Um, it's, it's a slightly different design of talisman, but it's a talisman. It works through whatever mechanism it is that, that allows magic to work. But,
1: yeah.
2: yeah, exactly. But then there's the actual Hieronymous machine that uses, um, that uses vacuum tubes or transistors. Um, mine, I, I have a home-built one, which I've gotten very good results from. It's a transistor-based unit. But the original patent, which you can get online quite readily, is, is vacuum tubes. But Hieronymous Hieronymus machine, it, it interacts with something. My take, based on my experiments with it, is that there's something physical going on. There's something besides the metaphysical that's actually interfacing with you through that machine. What right. is it? Can you, you know, get me an adequate grant, I might be able to find out. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: But do you, do you think it's the same thing that you think it's orgon, or do you think it's life
2: energy, or do you think it's something else? I, I don't know. I, yeah. uh, to, to to borrow a line from Isaac Newton, I feign no hypotheses. Okay. Um, it is quite possible, though. I mean, when we say orgon, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. When we say animal magnetism, when we say od or odile oh, yeah. to use. Um, Reichenbach's term, when we say eloptic energy, when we say any of these things, when we talk about the force, Mm. you know, the Jedi can feel the force flowing through him or what have you. Um, If we're talking about prana and ki, what Mm. are we talking about? We don't know. For the last 400 years, it's been absolutely forbidden for Western scientists to research such things. And those who do, and of course through quite a number of them have, they've been drummed out of the scientific community and shouted down because you can't have that. It is dogma that there, there cannot be anything like this. And the mere fact that people keep on discovering it and p- keep on testing it and keep on finding it showing up in their experiments over and over again, we know, let's not even talk about that.
3: right?
0: Mm-hmm. But so Hieronymus, near the end of his life, he made this uh, pipe, a Cosmo mm-hmm. Culture Pipe, um, which Cosmo Culture Pipe, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's been, you eventually had an adaptation of that. You called it
2: Earth Pipe. Um, mm-hmm. And
0: it's basically like a small temple that you can put in your garden.
2: Mm-hmm. It was part of the experimental process that I followed in the course of, of developing the hypotheses that I present in The Secret of the Temple. Mm -hmm. What it is, is a piece of ordinary plumbing pipe, which has a bunch of coils in the ground and a bunch of coils about six feet in the air. And in between, you have a little chamber, a little resonating chamber, in fact, which has more coilage around it and some other things in it and so on. And the main difference from that is that Hieronymus's machine had two chambers, and there were reasons for that. But I was working with a single chamber and, yeah, I put, one in, I put one in the backyard when, when we lived in, in um, far western Maryland. I put one in the backyard and grew some corn and had ordinary corn, 14 feet tall. I have fo- <laughs> there are photos online you could find. It yeah. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Hmm. <laughs> That's pretty neat. Now, was, does this mean that it was working by el- optic energy? Does it mean, I don't know. Again, hmm. it could have been electricity. Yeah. It could have been that it was causing some kind of flow involving terrestrial and atmospheric electricity, causing the same results that they got with the electrocultural experiments in the 1920s and 1930s. Yeah, uh, I didn't burn any incense in the, in, in the little chamber. Yes. I was trying to figure out how to do that without like, setting the PVC on fire or something, and I could not figure out a way to do that. If I had more space, I would simply have built a, a little shrine. In Japan and some other parts of the world, they do the these very small shrines. In Shinto, you don't use you don't burn incense. What you do is you build the whole thing out of hinoki wood, which is a relative of cedar, and which volatile organic compounds emanate from it in all directions. It's a very strong odor, a very very attractive odor. So you always make the interior Shinto shrine out of hinoki wood. So you know it comes with the incense built in, yeah. and they put those in little shrines of various kinds are quite common in various other traditions, and very often they have some source of volatile organic compounds in the little chamber inside. But a circumstance did not permit me to do those experiments at that time, and then we left Western Maryland for Rhode Island, and we live in an apartment just now. We'll see what happens when, when and if the current real estate crash continues, and we end up with another house. Yeah. So-
1: when does it matter where you put it in your garden? Like, yes. you know, okay, <laughs> where do you recommend? Okay,
2: it depends. It, that depends totally on local phenomena, and there are various ways to do it. There's actually a book. I think it's. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's just out or just coming out. Nigel Pennick, who mm. is a, an Earth mysteries researcher, that if you're not familiar with, run out and buy everything he writes. Uh, good. He knows his stuff. And he had a book called Creative in Places of Power, which talks in great detail about the traditional ways of locating a sacred place yeah. and building and establishing on it. John michel talks about that to some extent in The View Over Atlantis. But there are all of these ways to kind of use intuitive um, or, or you know, non-intuitive methods to try to find the right location. Yeah, And then no. once you have it, you, know, you put the thing in place and go for it.
0: So my grandfather, he was born in West Virginia and he would douse and uh, that'll do it. And our neighbors, they call it witching, but our neighbors mm-hmm. in, in central New York, they
2: you know, they, they do it too. Is that of what course. you that kind of thing you would use? That's one that is certainly one of the approaches. That's one of the common approaches. There's been a lot of interesting work with on the interface between dowsing and this kind of uh, semi-unknown energy research, of course. Mm-hmm. Tom Graves' book, Needles of Stone, gets into that in quite some detail. And and Needles of Stone, Needles of Stone revisited. He has some other things that are good. And yeah, because what dowsing is, is a way of tapping into subtle perceptions that your subconscious picks up on and your conscious mind doesn't. You know the, the hazel twig doesn't actually twitch of its own. It's your subconscious mind that makes it do that. It's the same thing that, that works with pendulums or various other things like that. And yeah, human beings are sensitive to, for example, magnetic fields. There was some really interesting research done back in the late 20th century on the effect of, of terrestrial magnetism on human consciousness. And it's very clear that There's a certain sensation that sensitive people get. Some people are more sensitive than others, of course. But there's a certain sensation most people get when they get into a place that has a high geomagnetic charge. And can that stimulate a dowser? Of course it can. So yes, if you want to make an earth pipe, do some dowsing to find the right place for it. Give it a try. See what happens.
1: Sweet. Yeah, I actually really do want to try that now. So this brings up another question about sacred sites. And when you're choosing a site you know, for your earth pipe, when you're dowsing, you're finding the spot. Did people do the same thing for choosing a site of like a stone circle or temple or church? Or did the site become sacred after they built the church?
2: Generally speaking, we don't know a lot about the founding of temples. There often wasn't much written down. And if this was in fact a secret of the old priesthood, is there a good reason for that? You know, they're keeping their trade secrets. There are many, many legends about how churches were located by miraculous means. You know, the, um, the, monks, the monks have set out to found a new abbey, and all of a sudden the oxen who are carrying the bones of St. Ethel, Ethel Swift, will not go further on the road. They take a left turn, and they just mm-hmm. keep on going, and they stop in the middle of a field, and they won't move. Mm-hmm. And the monks look at each other, and they pray, and they go, okay, I guess, you know, in the field and that's where the monastery goes. <laughs> the, or there are there are things about like an arrow being shot and it travels miraculously far in lands on a particular patch of land or, or there are many, many versions of this but they all amount to symbolic ways of talking about um, intuitional ways of locating something like this mm-hmm. so you can also to some extent do it by paying attention to landforms I almost hate to use the word feng shui these days mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Overused. It's been turned into a system of interior design for bored yuppies. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's not what it's about. But if you can get old books on the subject, if you can get some of the the classic texts, things that have been translated into Egypt, or books that aren't aiming for the bored yuppie crowd... um, Feng will tell you how to read hills, how to read landforms, land and you can say, okay, this is the right place, here's where the dragon and the tiger currents come together, to use the Chinese term, and we do here, and then, and then the energy starts flowing. So there are ways to do it from the shape of the land, there are ways to do it using um, dowsing, there are ways to do it using other divination methods. You can get it in a dream, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you can have your oxen take a sudden left turn or something. Uh, But (laughs) most of the old temples seem to have been located on spots that were already sacred, that were recognized as sacred spots. And if they became more sacred after the bones of Saint Ethelfrith were buried there or what have you hmm. that that's just to be expected
0: so, yeah so it's kind of like a potentially sacred sacred space mm-hmm. that is like elaborated upon or cultivated
2: yeah exactly exactly if my theory in the in the secret of the temple is correct okay you would find a place that has naturally a high geomagnetic charge it naturally builds up. Terrestrial magnetism is strong there. The terrestrial electric current tends to pool there, so you get a big static charge, Mm -hmm. and you you detect that somehow, and then you build your resonating chamber on top of it. Mm. And because you're making it of stone, and because you're making it of paramagnetic stone, okay, complicated issue here. There are two forces. These are known to physics, paramagnetism and diamagnetism. They're not quite magnetic in the same sense that, um, that, like, iron is. But paramagnetic is mildly attracted to magnetism. Diamagnetic is mildly repelled by it, very slightly. You can measure it, but it's not obvious. All of the old standing stones and stone circles were made of highly paramagnetic stone.
3: Hmm.
2: A lot of old temples and old churches were made of highly paramagnetic stone. It's been suggested among those of us on the fringe who research such things that that's an important key to the thing, that for some reason using that paramagnetic material is very important for getting the effect. Is that the case? I can't tell you. But that's what the evidence seems to suggest. So you build your structure of paramagnetic stone, your temple or your church is built, you begin doing the ceremonies, whether that means you're offering incense to the gods or whether you're performing the mass or what have you, and the effect starts building. If you know what you're doing, you get this sort of positive feedback loop going, and and again, if the microwave theory is right, these beneficent microwaves said low power begin radiating in all directions. And the crops go, ooh, Boing. yeah
1: yeah and so then we're seeing sacred sites and, and stone circles and temples being built in these exact lines to each other
2: mm-hmm. these direct lines mm-hmm. so
1: what is up with ley lines and
2: oh that is a complicated question yeah. that is very complicated because there, there are several I'm, I, I am certainly quite certain there are several different things going on They've been lumped together with ley lines.
3: Okay, yeah. Okay.
2: On the one hand, it is a standard part of the old temple toolkit to have dead straight paths radiating out from the central temple. And they go to little shrines or things like that in the outlying area. In northwestern Europe, they were also used to bring corpses in for, for the last rites. So you often, in, in, in Holland, for example, they're called dead roads. Corpse roads is another term, but they have various different uses of various traditions. You find them in an enormous range of places. In China, imperial tombs from the last, you know, three or four dynasties, they always have these straight roads emanating out from them in all directions, which violate the ordinary rules of feng shui. But they, it was argued this is important for the magical preservation of the dynasty or something. Mm-hmm. Um, the Inca used to have the same dead straight roads going out from the big temple, the big central temple in Cusco. Um, so you have so that's one source. You have these straight line roads radiating out from temples. What do they do? They're probably part of the effect, but we really don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's thing one. Thing two, I think that Alfred Watkins was dead on target when he said that when he, he figured out that back in the Neolithic period, there were systems of markers set up at distance to help people navigate across country. This is before there were roads. Mm-hmm. This is before there were, there were street signs. Okay, you need to go um, to Avebury for the, summer, for the summer festival. How are you going to get there through Stone Age Britain? You know, trackless forests, vast moors, a scattering of people across this, what at the time was an immense landscape. You look for the marker at the top of the ridge and you mm-hmm. move toward that marker as straight as you can. And then you get to you top the ridge, and then there's another one way off in the distance, and you proceed in a straight line going from marker to marker. That's what Alfred Watkins was talking about. That's his that's his ley system, and they later evolved into tracks for trade things. It's all very straightforward. It all makes perfect sense of what we know of um, of, of Neolithic and early Bronze Age Britain. And the only reason the archaeologists are, are you know so dead set against it is that. They didn't discover it, and, and part of the major. No, seriously, one of the major right. rules yeah. of modern science is that if you don't have a university position, you're not allowed to figure out anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so, so yeah, you know, we have to pretend that the people who built Stonehenge were a bunch of grunting, fur-clad primitives, which they obviously were not. We have to pretend that. Only, you know, qualified academics can come up with accurate hypotheses about the past, which is, again, nonsense. But that's the attitude these days. So that's the second thing you have. So you have the radiating roads from the temples. You have the track markers, the Watkins Network. And then there's something else going on, and we don't know what it is. People used to point out early on in the UFO phenomenon before the extraterrestrial hypothesis got so fixated, that these lights that people would see at night would move in straight lines. Um, I mean, Michelle (laughs) talks, talks about them as orthotonies. Just there are these straight lines where things seem to move in these lines. What's going on here? We don't know. But they don't seem to be the same lines that Alfred Watkins was talking about, and they don't seem to be the same lines that radiate out from medieval churches. So, so those
0: are also like in the
2: air, too. Yeah, yeah, they're in the air. But right. they get lumped together by, the, by a, lot of layla- a lot of incautious leyline theorists. And so, you know, any, any, any straight line is equal to any other straight line. Paul Devereux had a, had a really interesting suggestion that there are these traditions of shamanic flight, which probably have to do with out-of-body experiences. Uh-huh. And they yeah. also seem to move along lines. Right. So there may be something going on in that in that complicated interface between human consciousness and the land that caused the straight line that caused this set of straight line when it happened. But we don't know. It's that one of the um, one of the things about this whole field is that we have far more questions than we do answers. We need to gather much more information and look at it, not trying to grind an axe and prove a theory, but simply gather the lore, gather the folklore, gather the observations. And all the stuff that back when people were doing real science instead of just trying to sell corporate products was essential. It was an essential part of science.
1: So speaking of folklore and, and, you know, gathering stories, there's a lot of stories around fae and mm-hmm. stone circles. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you can shed any thoughts on that.
2: Well, anybody who claims to be able to say something um, accurate and intelligible about about fairy phenomena is smoking their
3: shorts.
2: (laughs) Seriously. I don't think that the research into the fairy faith and the human experiences connected to it have advanced in any significant degree since W.Y. Evan Wentz wrote the fairy faith in Celtic countries. Mm -hmm. There is something that affects human consciousness in a way that gives rise to fairy legends. The same thing seems to affect human consciousness in a way that gives rise to UFO abduction legends.
3: Right. Yeah, you know,
2: it is so obvious. You spelled it changeling, and I think we all know this story. But, yeah, there's all of this stuff. And, in fact, if you go into the literature on shamanic experiences, the literature on otherworldly experiences of all kinds, the similarities among, you know, the fairy stories and UFO stories and the mythologies and shamanic traditions of of every place on the planet – do you see this, the similarities? Why, yes, Socrates, you do. <laughs> There's some common factor underlying the whole thing. What it is, he- again, we have more questions than answers.
3: Yeah,
0: but maybe those spots that, where the electromagnetic uh, mm-hmm. stuff is going, it's like, the veil is thinner, maybe.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, oh, come on. Michael Persinger, who was a scientist working with the effect of magnetic fields on human consciousness in the late 20th century. He notes that certain kinds of magnetic phenomena can cause vivid hallucinations. Mm. Mm-hmm. He would literally put the American University sophomore right next to the white rat as your basic experimental subject. Uh, he would get, although he was Canadian actually, but the same thing applies there. <laughs> so he, he would get sophomores and they'd put them in these things in the chair and focus magnetic fields field on their brains and they'd start seeing ghosts.
3: Mm. And mm-hmm.
2: they'd start seeing aliens. And they'd start seeing all kinds of strange things. And so clear, you know, one of the things that could be going on here is that these intense magnetic fields, the veil is thin, that's true. Whether what's being seen has an objective reality or whether it has a purely subjective reality, that's another question we can't answer yet. It's very unpopular to suggest that this can, you know, outside of occult circles, that these things might have some objective reality, but that's a hypothesis that also needs to be explored.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not always that simple either.
2: It's not always that simple. <laughs> yes. Can we please get those words on the business end of a branding iron? <laughs> so I, can, I can apply those words to a large number of very tender buttocks because the number of people, whether again in the scientific community and in the occult community, and in, yeah. who are all trying to oversimplify. Yeah. We're all trying to get it all down to one answer. It's just, it's, it's really embarrassing. The, war, the universe we live in is crazily complex. It is much more complex than probably than we can ever even imagine. And yeah, we have to simplify things to try to make sense of it because, you know, our brains are only so big. But you take that way too far.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It certainly is very complicated.
2: And it, it
0: seems like we can't even <laughs> necessarily know, but at the same time, we haven't researched it. But
2: at least look into it. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. And unfortunately, too much of modern science is based on the idea that we're going to simplify the world by closing our eyes and plugging our ears and saying "la la la," I can't hear you. To yeah. whole classes of very common human human experience.
0: Yeah. So there's another quote that I wanted to get into, and this is by mm-hmm. Hugh, Hugh Lovell, who wrote an article on the cosmic pipe in Acres, USA. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about Steiner here. Um, he's kind of, mm-hmm. I guess, paraphrasing Steiner, but he says, force arises between opposite polarities. Electricity arises between the positive and negative polarities. Magnetism arises between North and South polarities. And the third force, a cohesive or formative force arises between point The point and the periphery, or up and down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And polarity is such a (laughs) fundamental concept for Mm -hmm. occultism, just for understanding the world Mm -hmm. in general. (laughs) You have yin and yang, you have hot and cold, and so on. But it's also important to what we're talking about here, because it seems like these forces are created from a from some kind of polarity, if we can say that anything is going on, mm-hmm. like there, there are these points of the north and the south, there are mm-hmm. points of up and down. And the one that was really interesting to me was the center and the periphery.
2: Uh-huh. Now, you can go a long way down that particular rabbit hole because yeah. um, Steiner on the one hand, but especially some of the very innovative people who worked with his ideas, really got into exploring projective oh, wow. geometry. And they pointed out that when you're dealing with the obvious physical forces and obvious physical matter, we have a particular geometry that centers on bodies of mass. You know, we all know about gravity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Everything sort of pulls in toward a center. Yeah. And what Steiner argued on the basis of his experiences in his experiments and what these people developed is that... There is another set of forces which moves in the other direction. Along with physical gravity, there is a kind of metaphysical levity. And I don't mean that in the sense of a joke, but a force moving the opposite direction. And so living things in particular tend to have this levity effect. And the geometry within the world we experience with our senses it's very, you know, there's the center as the material center, and then there's the, the absolute periphery, which represents the, the center of the etheric forces, of these, non, these metaphysical formative forces. And there's a lot of complexity in the way the projective geometry works and how you can see, geometrically speaking, you can see the etheric forces as having a center, which we experience as the periphery, And the center that we experience, the material center, is from an etheric standpoint, the periphery. It's the outside edge.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: So from one point of view, the world is a ball with a mass at the center. And from the etheric perspective, the world is a hollow sphere and we're on the inside. Yeah. And
0: you can actually (laughs) kind of see that in a Uh first-person way. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Just... (laughs) You're flipping back and forth between, like,
2: are you inside or outside of your experience? There, there, was, there was a really remarkable American spiritual teacher many years ago called – named Cyrus Teed. Oh. And his whole thing was we're actually on the inside. The world is hollow and we are on the inside. Yeah. And he had quite a following at one point. He took it physically, and I think that's a mistake. Yeah. But Steiner was, Steiner was trying to demonstrate that mathematically speaking – you can understand the etheric formative forces by way of this kind of inversion, by way of seeing the periphery of the solar system as being a central point mm-hmm. and the Earth as being on the outside. Right. <laughs> and and that mathematically, that model works for the etheric forces just as well as the conventional model works for physical forces. Again, that's a deep rabbit hole. You can fall a long ways down that, and I hope more people do. I believe just about all the literature on that has been translated in English at this point, uh, wow. out of originally German, you know, that's, that was Steiner's own language. And it's definitely worth looking into.
0: Yeah. And looking at the elements from that perspective, too, like how Earth and water, uh, are mm-hmm. gravity and air and fire you know, move up. Uh-huh. they're
2: more spiritualized and therefore yeah. more influenced by the etheric forces as they have more of that force of levity connected to them yeah that's that was something that medieval physicists figured out
0: <laughs> right and even in terms of like modern occultism mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah. you have like invo- involutionary and the evolutionary mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. poles <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um But I'm also interested in looking in terms of human culture too. Like we have the city and we have the rural and where we are in central New York, it's actually kind of interesting how we're on the edge, we're on the periphery of many city centers in a kind of crazy, because like we're about four and a half hours from New York City, Boston and Philly, but then even in like Syracuse and Binghamton and Ithaca are all about the same distance away from us. And then (laughs) we have four smaller cities or, or large towns that are all about 40 minutes away from us. And mm-hmm. even in the small like township where we are, we're on the edge between these three or four towns that are about <laughs> 10 minutes away. But <laughs> it kind of creates a, a liminal area, you know? Steiner would have loved that.
1: <laughs> we love it.
0: <laughs> we do. It's, it's kind of a magical spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also in terms of like culture too, because you, you revel in being on the fringes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and it gives you a lot of freedom right because like the, the freedom where the center is uh more control mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> gotta love the forest edge the where the forest meets the field the yeah exactly and
2: and as every as every ecologist knows it's the ecotones the places yeah. where one ecosystem fades into another mm-hmm. that's where you have the most diversity of animal and plant life you have the largest the largest biomass in those areas you have yeah. the most interesting things happening Back. where the forest meets the meadow where the water meets the air where the sea meets the shore all of these all of the ecotones are places where things get strange
0: yeah yeah and, and permaculturists exploit that i you know, mean mm-hmm. like they all like odom is like required reading I mean, maybe not required, well, but it's definitely- I know, should,
2: should be. That's another one. Anyone who's doing any kind of ecological agriculture who does not memorize Odom should probably be flogged.
0: <laughs> that, yeah, we should be pr- putting his name out there because it's and, very yeah. interesting stuff and, fa- and yeah, fundamental, foundational.
2: Well, the, yeah, the crucial thing about Odom, of course, is that he insisted on thinking of ecosystems, not mm-hmm. individual organisms, but how does the whole system work? Right. And Um, that's critical if you're going to actually understand what's going on, because that simplifies things to the point that the human mind can actually work with them. If you're working with individual organisms, you're going to lose track of the consequences as they cascade outwards.
0: Yeah. And then working with the whole system, in a way, requires a massive amount of analysis. But the other way of working with it is intuition, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It's almost artistic.
2: (laughs) Well, and there is a third trick also. And the third method is tradition. Ah, yeah. What worked, in, what worked the last hundred times this was tried? Yeah. Now, that's not to say it's the only option, and it should never be the only option. But if you have the rational approach, the intuitive approach, and the traditional approach, and you were triangulating between those, you're going to have a lot better shot.
0: Yeah yeah and and that's what's to me is so appealing about these old Mm -hmm. technologies and almost forgotten Mm -hmm. technologies for working with the life force and the earth energies Mm -hmm. Um, because the tradition really has been lost except in terms of like some of that feng shui and some Mm -hmm. temple technology in in shinto shrines and so on um Mm -hmm. it's amazing
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. well that's One of the great advantages of being a geek is that you can put some serious time into excavating some of these forgotten traditions. The thing is, in most of the world's societies, the life force is just an everyday reality. Everyone recognizes it. Um, if, If you happen to study the Japanese language, you'll find the word ki, which is their term for the life force. It's used constantly every day. It's used for mood. It's used for Mm -hmm. the quality of a place. It's used for a hundred different things. It's constantly appearing in compound form and just as a matter of ordinary speech because everyone's used to the fact that the life energy is a regular part of life. The same is true, has been true of most other languages and most other societies. The industrial societies of the modern West are uniquely clueless about the life force because we have an ideology that doesn't allow us to notice what's right in front of our face. I mean, he, those of us who grew up in the backwash of the 1960s, the vibes. Right. Wow, you know, he has kind of a kind of a uh, bad vibe or oh man, the place, the vibes around that place were just great. That, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, These are things that anybody can experience, anyone can perceive, but you're not supposed to, or you're going to get your hands slapped by the ghost of Carl Sagan.
0: Right <laughs> well, I guess that's why we have so many words for it in English now.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the thing. People keep on discovering it. You can't chase it away. It's right. there. You chase it right out the front door, it's going to walk up right behind you, having ducked right in the back door. And so you get rid of animal magnetism, and here's Odile, and you get rid of that, and here's elliptic energy. Oh, and there's uh, an orgone, who's called call it, climbing in the window. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then the Force comes. After. And then the Force, yes. Yes, right. yes, trust in the Force, Luke. And all of a sudden, yeah, you've got how many millions of people now who claim their religion is Jediism? Yeah,
0: that's true. probably more than some religions.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, more than quite a few religions. And yeah. part of that is because there's so many people out there who have done martial arts or some of the other practices. They felt the stuff. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you, when you actually feel it yourself, <clears throat> it becomes painfully clear that it's sometimes, very painfully clear, depending on your choice of martial art, you, you know, uh, that this thing is a reality. And it doesn't matter if the ghost of Carl Sagan babbling. I know that can't exist. There are Billions and billions of reasons. Well, you know, big deal.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, even the, talking about the ghost of, of Carl Sagan is a little. Uh...
2: <laughs> science is not invoking the ghost of Carl Sagan as a rhetorical device. Simply well, because he would, against have, science. He, he would have turned so fetchingly purple to hear it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So so there's one more question that I've got for you. Mm -hmm. maybe a little more complicated, maybe a little heavier, but my ancestors have lived in this land well, in America, in the Appalachians for many generations at this point, but Mm -hmm. um, I still come from Europe and the spirits of the land in this land are. Well, what are your thoughts on a white person working with, the the native spirits of this land is it the same as working with earth energies or is there something else going on and is there a place where we should be more circumspect or
2: okay first of all you should always be circumspect well yeah (laughs) working with sonic spirits of any kind Right. Um, okay. That people have to be extremely circumspect. You know, in England, if your ancestors had been living in this particular part of the West Country for 1,500 years, in some cases, I forget, there was a guy who they found a skeleton in a cave in Somerset, and the DNA, it was sufficiently well preserved. They did, got DNA tested, and it turned out the local school teacher was descended from him 9,000 years later.
0: Wow, wow. that's so amazing.
2: And Even in England, you're circumspect about working with the earth spirits, they're tricky. Yeah. They're not necessarily your friends. Mm -hmm. Um, You you know, they may help you, but they may not. So circumspection is essential anytime you're dealing with chthonic energies. And that's true of the personalized forms and of the impersonalized forms. The fact that your ancestors came here from somewhere else, well, everyone's ancestors came ultimately from Africa.
0: True. Right.
2: So, you know, we are all immigrants to this continent. Humanity did not arise here. And um, it is certainly true that the descendants of the of the older arrivals they had in many cases have a great deal more knowledge of the tradition of the earth energies and the earth the earth spirits than us newcomers did, especially since most of our immediate ancestors were really clueless about that subject. Yeah. And yeah. there are a lot of old, a lot of old sorrows and a lot of old crimes. And one of the things about the earth energies is they don't forget that. Mm-hmm. Those will be paid for sooner or later. And exactly how that's going to play out, I hope I don't have to find out. Because um, it's usually, I mean, the people who are now English many of them became English. Their ancestors invaded England, you know, in one of various waves of invaders, starting with the Celts and ending ending with the Normans. Yeah. And they became English by a long process of suffering mm. <laughs> and bloodshed. Yeah. And my guess is that's going to happen to, to the white American population too. We've been here for a few centuries on my dad's side only been here for about yeah, about two hundred years now, which is not that much, yeah, and you know a few more centuries, a little more a little more misery suffering bloodshed and war, and all the usual things that that involve that you know because ultimately the link with the land is made with blood mm. <clears throat> and that's you know, that's one of the things, the ancients knew it, and that's one of the reasons they did their their animal sacrifices on outdoor altars, because the, the land is fertilized with blood. So, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> unfortunately, there there are various ways to do that, and warfare is one of them. There's a lot of stresses and tensions in our society these days, and I'd be very pleased if we could get through them without serious bloodshed, but we'll see.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Definitely a little heavier, but it's definitely heavier. But, but the, the, the thing is, dealing with the land is not a matter of waltzing in and saying, oh, hi there, land. Do what I want you to. <laughs> right. It's no. not a matter of levity. It's a matter of gravity. It's a matter of gravity. You need to go in there and say, it's well, the comparison that I used in, in one of my books. It's, like, it's as though you moved in just down the road from a village of a tribal people. Okay. And they have their customs and they have their ways. And if you want something from them, you have to conform to their customs. They are not going to conform to yours. So you have to find out what they want, what they will accept, what offends them, what pleases them. And you have to walk very carefully. That's our relationship with the earth when we're behaving with with, the brains of the gods gave geese. Uh, expecting the earth to simply cater to us because we're destiny's darlings. You know, we're, we're, we're the, the cutting edge of evolution. We're the masters of this rock. What a bunch of pompous idiocy.
1: So any um, tips for us in approaching spirits of the land and the earth with reverence and respect?
2: Very, very simply start by doing, doing a lot of sitting, and watching.
0: Hmm.
2: I, I believe that's something that permaculturists are supposed to do. Yeah,
0: it's the first principle.
2: A yeah. lo- exactly. Spend a lot of time listening to the land. Um, learn your local stories. Find out what are the legends? What are the bits of history that people still remember? What are mm-hmm. the, you know, where are the echoes of myth? What's going yeah. on in, in terms of the, the narrative landscape of the place?
3: Yeah.
2: Um, what, are the pl- what are the places of symbolic importance nearby? What are the places that everyone talks about, or that no one talks about?
3: Mm-hmm. So just
2: kind of get into the flow of it. If there are sacred spaces, or just places where weird things happen, um, strange and, and anomalous phenomena will give, will sometimes give you a lead to such things. You know, you can begin getting a sense of what works, and then make changes to your own way of doing things. That these things and your own intuition, your divination methods and so on, lead you to think, this will be welcome to the earth. This will be welcome to the land. If I do this and this and this, let's see how the land responds. And the land will tell you when you're doing the right thing. When you end up with those 14-foot tall corn, <laughs> corn plants, you'll go, okay, this, this, was, this, was, this was welcome. Right. And if things go haywire... Then you know, okay, I mean, that's like Reich with his, with the, the door experiments, where he was trying to, the Oranor experiments, where he was trying to use organ energy to deal with nuclear, with radioactive substances and ended up finding out something very, very dangerous instead. Yeah. You need to be tentative and pay attention to your failures. And this is how it was done over in past ages when people you know, first built those temples. And noticed some effects and they started tinkering and saying, okay, if we keep doing this or if we do something a little different, and the people, you know, over in the next river valley is saying they did what? And what happened? Hmm. And you know, yeah. and away we go.
3: Hmm. Yeah, that's
1: all good advice. And it's a good reminder too, like we do have the divination tools mm-hmm. and have the yeah, triangle exactly. and note taking and listening. Like it's it's doable.
2: Exactly. Actually, all of this is very well-timed because I'm currently working on a book, which is part of the series of books that sort of extend from my book, The Way of the Golden Section. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a book, that's the keystone of the system, that and the sacred geometry oracle. There are three books of of instruction. There's the way of the golden section, the way of the four elements, the way of the secret temple. And then three books of basically meditation themes and and stuff to study. And the first of those, it's already out, is the occult philosophy workbook. But the second, which is currently in preparation, is the earth mysteries workbook. And it's focusing on how to learn the subtle aspects of the land where you live. Awesome. That's about uh, what? 30, it's getting up for 40,000 words done so far. And it'll, I expect to finish it in the spring and, and get into the publishers. So down the road,
3: you
1: know, there will
2: be at least a at least one source of guidance that people can use for that.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Great. That's really mm-hmm. cool.
0: Well, uh, this has been a really wonderful discussion, JMG. I'm well, really glad you. we got to do this. Thank you. Thank you,
1: you for uh, being on the well, Plank Podcast again.
0: Mm-hmm. I'll look forward to it.